Do you dread tax time because you haven't saved enough for taxes? Are you totally confused and lost about your business finances? Do you worry that you'll never be able to retire or save for your kid's college education? If you bury your head in the sand because you think you'll never be a money person, I want to let you in on a huge secret. All you need to manage your private practice finances are a simple series of skills that you can learn. After all, you already did the hard work of graduating from college, becoming a therapist, and starting your private practice. Hi, I'm Lindsay Bonham. I'm a therapist turned money coach and the creator of Money Skills for Therapists. I've helped hundreds of therapists just like you develop peace of mind about their money. I invite you to watch my free masterclass where I teach my four-step framework to get your business finances totally in order. In the masterclass, I cover the three biggest mistakes that therapists make that keep them from getting clarity on their private practice finances, the secret that most accountants don't want you to know, and why working with your mindset and emotions is essential to changing your patterns with money. This masterclass is for therapists and health practitioners who are running or about to start a private practice. It is the first step in learning about my signature course, Money Skills for Therapists. Register today with the link in the show notes to take the first step to go from money confusion, anxiety, and shame to feeling clear and empowered about your money. I look forward to supporting you. At the time, it was like the the beginning of like the online entrepreneur. And a lot of people were investing in marketing and I invested in grad school. And I had to put it on interest-free credit cards and <laughs> do the shuffle because I was not going full-time and I was b- building a business on the side. But I really think focusing on mastery, was it was a longer-term play. Welcome to the Money Skills for Therapists podcast, where we answer this question. How can therapists and health practitioners go from money shame and confusion to feeling calm and confident about their finances and get money really working for them in both their private practice and their lives? I'm your host, Lindsay Bonham, therapist turned money coach and creator of the course Money Skills for Therapists. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. So today I'm having a conversation with Ali Shapiro. Ali Shapiro is the host of the top ranked podcast, Insatiable. She's a holistic nutritionist. She's an integrated health coach, and she's also a rebel with a cause. (laughs) Today, Ali and I get into, we go a lot of places. It was a really like interesting and kind of far-ranging conversation digging into talking about the money stories that we inherit, that we bring into our businesses, talking about hair work and how it's devalued, talking about uh, investing in mastery as like a financial investment that you can make, really investing deeply in your own skills as a great way to uh, invest in yourself. Talking about empathy and money, connections between money and food. It's a rich tapestry uh, in my conversation with Ali today with lots of interesting stops along the way. I really uh, enjoyed the conversation. Here is my episode with Ali Shapiro. So Ali, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Lindsay. (laughs) I am excited to have you here. We were just chatting off mic about our various connections through other amazing women that we have in common. Uh, So this is a treat to get to have a chat with you and talk about money and your relationship to money in your like trajectory and what you've done. So just to kind of set it up, Ali, I'd love to hear a little bit about what your trajectory has been as uh, a health practitioner, a holistic nutritionist into now a coach. 
Yeah. Probably the most useful place to start is like 2015, where (laughs) I didn't think I really had to think about my relationship with money. I started my business. uh, I left my corporate job in 2007 and just thought passion and wanting to help people was my Mm. business plan. (laughs) 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 And I thought of myself as quote unquote, good with money. I came from a middle-class background um, in the eighties and nineties when middle-class was, you know, still a possible upward mobility Mm -hmm path, at least in the States. It's less and less so these days. And I had internalized those ethos of you don't spend more, you cut back, mm-hmm. you cut costs. Mm-hmm. And so I was, <laughs> so I had run a business um, successfully profitable since day one, was hustling as hard as I could because I also was middle-class. And so working hard was another ethos that that you really learned. And in 2015, I basically hit this wall of having a ton of clients, but being like, I've hit a ceiling with my time and also financial income. And part of this was realizing that when you're doing something like therapy or coaching or even health, it's not as valued as other things. Yeah, Caretaking, we'll just put caretaking and healing is, is undervalued in our culture. And so I started and my accountant was like, look, you can't cut back anymore. Like I was not, I'm not a spender. I'm a minimalist. And I Mm -hmm. thought I was good. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was sort of like, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? Kind of looking at myself of thinking I was missing Mm -hmm. missing something. And I came across this study from Dartmouth University that they were trying to study this like entrepreneurial gene. They were looking for an entrepreneurial gene. Like what makes people great at entrepreneurship? And what they basically found, and this has been replicated in several other studies, is that it's family money and the connection. (laughs) That's not a dream. (laughs) 80% of people who, who start businesses have family money and thus the network as well. And I went from all of a sudden, what am I doing wrong to, oh my God, you don't have family money and you're still here. So it was this like realization that a relationship with money was something that I had to like grapple with. Not Mm. that I was just good with money, Mm -hmm. but that I was going to have to like understand things that perhaps people who were born with money learned that I did not learn and that I was also terrified of. So that's kind of my, and it wasn't like I was in dire straits or anything. So, because when you're in dire straits, you dive deeper in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But for me, I was like, I have to stop thinking like I'm middle-class and that all I can do is cut back more. Right. And how can I grow and spend in still a discerning way because I think one of the advantages of growing up middle class and not having a lot of capital in your business is you become a lot more discerning of where you're sure. going to spend your money. Yes. yes. So, <laughs> so that is kind of uh, where I think really understanding that a relationship with money and being conscious of it like really took hold um, and had that realization and that aha, but also realizing like, oh, there's some stuff I have to learn to quote unquote, be better with money, not just good because I'm not in debt and I'm paying my bills. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting kind of thinking there of noticing like, yeah, in the middle class, it's like, what do you do? You just, you spend less, right? Like you don't necessarily think about expanding all that much. Um, And when you're saying middle class, you're like, I'm hearing more like, like lower middle class, like tell tell me about kind of what, what that looks like just for folks listening. So they can think about like, "Hmm, was that me? Or is that different than my financial situation growing up? Yeah. 
Yeah. So my parents were city school teachers, which are even more underpaid than suburban school teachers in general. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and my parents, neither of them came from money. My dad actually mm. grew up in projects um, in a single family household. Mm -hmm. And my mom was one of nine kids and she was the first in her family to go to college. And she worked overnights and, you know, as a waitress and has really never stopped hustling. Um, So I I feel like my parents were comfortable with money once I was in college. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't that happen? I've I've noticed um, a trajectory in my own parents, like their financial life and then my own financial life where they grew up working class. My mom grew up on a farm with very, very little money, like very frugal too. Yeah, there you go. So very frugal. So that side of the family, it's all about like frugality and like, you know, really just taking care of the things that you have. Cause it's not like more things are going to come along. Right. And then my dad grew up very working class, like auto mechanic working class. Right. So this very kind of like rough, like you got to be tough. Don't get paid a lot, but you got to work really hard with your body. You know, there's like things like I feel like alcoholism that goes hand in hand with that kind of like hard mechanical work. And so they kind of had this. And when I was growing up, they were kind of like moving up slowly while I was there. Now my parents are upper middle class, but I wasn't there for that part. So it is interesting to see how like where we hit our parents' life, like the arc that we hit gives us a certain experience and we inherit a certain story from them while we're like little sponges, you know, while we're kids that can be very different than the way they might talk or think about money now as they've kind of worked through their financial trajectory, whatever that's been. Totally. And the conditions are different. Like I had cancer as a teenager and my parents' healthcare bills, because they were in a teacher's union, were manageable. Yes. And I think about that now, if that were to happen to someone in my family, I mean, that would, that might bankrupt us. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like they had those in, in America, we had much more of a middle class then and a safety net that is no longer there. So even like we're trying to decide where to send my son to school. And it's like, well, we just went to public school. Like I have never thought that I would send someone potentially to private school, Yes, but the state of public education and we live in a city. And so it's like all these different decisions that I never thought like were never even considered based on the changing culture and, and safety net in America, what has not been invested in is now coming home to roost. So yeah, that is such an interesting distinction too, between those like, again, systemic, like what's been happening systemically. So it's like your parents had this certain kind of healthcare as part of their employment that creates a certain kind of stability. So there was less cash, but there was more insurance. There was more safety. And now what I'm hearing is like, you know, there's more cash, like maybe in your situation or, or lots of folks have more cash, but there's less safety net for a lot of people who are in, you know, regular kind of employment. They're not taken care of in the way they used to be. So there's a different kind of of instability there. 100%. Yeah. More cash in hand, less safety. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, you know, thinking about your business, like what has been for you the key to financial success and like getting where you are today? Yeah. I think the first thing is I focused on mastery. So when I was coming, when I was coming up, I went to an inter- a holistic nutrition school and it was, it was amazing in that it, I didn't go there to change my career. I go there, I went there to try to like end my disordered eating and heal. I had all these health issues from my chemo that I didn't know. It was like 10 years and I was IBS, depression, all these yeah. things. But so that, that was great. But at the time it was like the 
the beginning of like the online entrepreneur. And a lot of people were investing in marketing and I invested in grad school and I had to put it on interest-free credit cards mm-hmm. <laughs> do the mm-hmm. shuffle because I yep. was not going full-time and I was b- building a business on the side. But I really think focusing on mastery was, it was a longer term play. Like mm. if I'm like, I want to do this for life. Yeah. So that was really helpful. And that also helped my marketing. I was clear in my marketing. I had a true market differentiate, like a, yeah. like I could truly yeah. make, offer something different, not just yeah. put like, a bunch of bells and whistles on it. So once I felt like, and again, you don't have to wait until you feel masterful. Cause I, every year I'm like, Oh, sure. what I said five years ago, I would have said it differently or yeah. it feels like I have more skill. So I think that was really important. And I think in that mastery, it enabled me to scale the change process, which is highly individualized. My process meets people exactly where they are. So it's not a formula. It's not tools. It's not rules because what I want actually to do is free people and to make them feel that they can make more, what we call like psychologically flexible decisions. Mm. So it's not about telling them what to do. It's guiding them to their own agency. And so figuring out how to scale that, especially into groups has enabled me to work less, (laughs) make more, and also give me the, afford me the ability to be accessible to people who need scholarships or whatnot, because I do not believe that, that, you know, well, if someone wants it bad enough, they'll They'll find it. They'll make it work. They'll just get another job to take your course. (laughs) No. And I don't want them to do that. (laughs) And I know how hard people work for their money. So I think that mastery enabled me to then get strategic of groups. And the interesting thing is thinking of talking about systemic issues, especially in America, and I would say North America, probably where you live as well, is this like, even the way the healthcare system is set up, it's like individual sessions. Like that's Mm -hmm. what you do. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, when you really think about healing, especially the work that I do, being in a group with other people accelerates it. So understanding again, that it's this win, it's this triple win for your business, your clients and your bottom line (laughs) (laughs) of having something that you can scale that meets people exactly where they are. And so Mm -hmm. I think that, and then once I was able to, again, because I'm, I'm still, don't just shell out money to spend on anything. Once I was like, oh, this is really working, then doubling down on, well, what works for me to get clients? And it's mm-hmm. like podcast interviews like this and teaching. Mm-hmm. And so focusing, doubling down on what works and not what like every new shiny, oh, you need this, you need yes. that. Endless shiny um, objects. Yeah. 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 Is really, I think, able me to slowly grow mm. into in the nervous system world, like they name it titrating mm-hmm. where you're like yeah. slowly building your yeah. capacity. Yeah. And that is what I see, you know, happen for me. Like when I started doing groups, I, it was like, okay, I went from like around 60 K a year to like 80, 90. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Yes. Yes. I can, you know, and, the, and it's like, now I can spend a little bit more of this and that and it's like, then it's like, okay, then I'm over six figures, but it was mm-hmm. like, it took me up until like 50, 60 to get mastery that I was comfortable with, with what I was, the value I was offering yeah. and then testing out how do I grow that? Yes. And then once you know what works, then you just double down on it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that framing of, of mastery being the root of this. I just, I just literally yesterday started reading deep work. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but I, I have a friend who's been telling me to read it for years and she finally visited me in person and we were literally in a bookstore together. So I was like, okay, now, now I'm finally going to get the book that you're physically present with me. <laughs> and I read it last night. And even just the act of reading the book, I was like, oh, I'm, I, I'm getting the slowing down and deepening, even just by like not being on my phone and reading this book and taking it in. And 
the argument of that book is we're so distracted now. There's so many shiny things that call our attention all the time. Everybody's promising like a solution to all these problems that may or may not be problems you have, but like they'll convince you that that's a problem you have, that our attention is so divided that the ability to stop and focus and deepen and like learn, really deeply learn something so you can really master something is becoming increasingly rare and increasingly valuable. That's the argument of the book, right? It's like less people are doing it. So there's less people who are also masters of what you're doing. And so it's really in demand when you can really be like, I own this. And I have like really spent so much time with this and like teaching and finding the way to teach this that really lands with folks and like developing the right container or the way of doing the work. It's so, so valuable because I think most of us were moving too fast. Yeah. You know, you're, you're trying to do everything at once, which means you do everything with like an eighth of your attention. Yeah. And I think too, sometimes I, I can at least speak for myself as like, you know, what got me into this and my passion was like my disordered relationship with food. Mm-hmm. But then I work through that and I, I see at least in the coaching world, I, I won't yeah. say for, for therapists, a lot of people, once they work through their stuff, they're like, well, I'm pivoting, right? It's like, I'm a hundred percent. Yeah. And, yes. and I get that. Yes. And yes. I mean, I have deepened, you know, what I've like, I now train people in stubborn change or complex change. And and so I still need an edge there, but it's like getting better at that and, and still offering it in a way that it still interests me mm-hmm. where it's like, my work is more about psychological safety. So like I can still talk about food, but it's the reasons people turn to food, the reasons people have trouble with change. And so it doesn't mean that you can't change. It just means like, I think what the deep work is saying is like, how do you bring the mastery with you into mm-hmm. something else? And I, I do think in the online world, the climate of, of our culture is exactly what you're saying. It's like, let's move on. Let's yes. move fast. Like, I've got this. Yeah. I figured it out. Yeah. It's just things, my husband always goes, Allie, things t- are going to take the time they're going to take. Yes. And I'm like, <laughs> I hate that. I hate that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yes. he's right. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. And it does take, I mean, it took me like 10 years of mastery, you know, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and all that stuff. But it's really rewarding now, 16, 17 years in. I feel like it's like the oak tree metaphor. Like it's really the solid roots are taking care of me, right? It's like, and it's like, okay, like, you know, I think at least in coaching and I don't know about therapy, but it's like, oh, you think you should be good and be able to charge. Like you have all these people telling people just charge more and like, you're worth it. It's like, Mm -hmm. wait, there's a value in the market to to what you're you're offering, yeah. but also you would never go to a corporate job and think that you're the top or the best within two or three years. Yeah, like you know, so yes. there's this like distorted like. Yes, there is. Mm-hmm. Yes, but there's nuance of like. Also, I think people, therapists and coaches, often undercharge the ones who yes. are really good. Yes, if you're really good, you're probably not <laughs> you're charging. Undercharge. Enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so true because I think also you know when you are really engaged with something deeply you also know how much you don't know which means you tend to focus more on what you on the what you don't know you tend to devalue what you do know and you're like well like i i hear this all the time from folks where it's like well uh, i don't want to raise my rate until i do this like whole other modality training and it's like but dude you've got this modality which you rock at already just because you're not trained in the new hot modality that's come up doesn't mean you're not amazing at this right like but just like there's something there's something about holding still and like sinking in that I think can be really difficult as a healer. And sometimes I think too, with, with the folks that I tend to support, they do tend to be perfectionistic. So if something gets kind of easy, then they're like, well, I have to move on to something else that's hard. <laughs> like they're looking for the hard. 
they're looking for the hard, but like, I love what you're describing here where rather than a like pivoting away where it's like, well, I now have a good relationship with food. So that's not interesting anymore. I'm going to move on to this other topic. That's now interesting to me. It's like, you can sink into that topic and look at how to like teach what I'm hearing in part is like, now you're teaching more of like what's underneath that issue and you're teaching it in this new, different expanded way. So there's still lots of newness there, but you're still, you're staying in your, your content expert area that you've spent more than a decade honing knowledge in. Yeah. And I think you put, bring up such a good point about us, those of us who are healers. If you're a healer, you have a creative spirit. I mean, that is what healing Mm. is. Right. And I think what gets mixed in is this like, I need a creative challenge, but if I view perfectionism or I have beliefs that it has to be hard, which often money, (laughs) money beliefs are like, you know, if you're middle-class, it has to be hard. Yes. Yes. Work is hard. But it's, I think it's discerning like, oh, there is this creative impulse there that to like deepen. And then my protection strategy, I call them protection strategy, like perfectionism is a protection strategy, right? It's like, oh, that's making me go in a different direction versus like for me, it's like, okay, the challenge in my business was, okay, engagement. Once people found me, they loved it. They're like, this is what I've been looking for. I didn't even have language for it. And then sales are just like, you know, I don't do the, I call it the bro marketing sales where I like pressure people, but I always had a challenge with the top of the funnel because I like to go deep and I like to go nuanced. Yes, right. And so it's like, okay, redirect that creative challenge towards the part of your business that isn't working. Right. That <laughs> needs the attention. Work, yeah. Rather than like pivoting. And I and I think what what I found, because I used to think like there were all these new modalities and all this stuff. And granted, in my certification, it's the entire blueprint of change. And so there are tools that fit into that. But I found that the deeper mastery you have, you can see where your mastery is already aligning with the what's marketed as new and mm, yeah. interesting, yes. right? It's yes. like, oh, I'm just saying this in this way, or yeah. this can augment this, but it's not that I have to like leave my current expertise and I have so much value in that current expertise. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would just encourage people to find where the business challenges and use their creativity there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to walk on to some other, you know, topic content area. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Use it. <laughs> Well, and and I think that this there's something here too, Ali, that I think is applicable to money in general too, which is I think sometimes it's it's like this that steadiness that really adds up over time, right? Like the steadiness, like the putting away five hundred dollars a month that adds up over the course of five years and ten years. And sometimes we want things to be like fast and exciting and new, and financially people want to like invest in the thing that's going to make them a ton of money at once. Right. Like we look for the the flashy, the shiny object. You know, sometimes when people get into investing, I don't think folks will listen to us, but certainly a lot of people in the investing world, it's like, go for the stock that's gonna win. Like it's like it's gambling, right? It's gambling. It's not actually um investing. And there's a lot of patience with money. Um, and I think a lot of patience with what you're talking about of like really honing mastery and like staying there, living there, continuing to deepen that that really, really pays off long term. But it's not this incredible explosion of like suddenly you're a multimillionaire. It is like it's steady and it's sustainable and it's what actually gives you stability in life. Totally. I always tell people like food is the simple piece. I'm like, it's boring, like investing in your finances. Like everybody wants the quick rich, the quick thin, you know, it's like, but it's the boring stuff of like putting away in your SEP, putting away in your Roth, Mm -hmm. put it, you know, like maybe, I mean, I have one client who doesn't understand the stock market. So she invests in real estate, but it's just like slow and steady, boring stuff. But it's also like, I think sometimes money, food, 
anything we really want to change, it's so charged. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, there are these boring, non-personal foundations that everybody has to do. And you just have to figure out how to stick with it. Yes. Yeah. They'll build the systems, build the habits. Yes. And like, you know, what I see with money is when folks work on it, I think there's so many parallels between money and food. Oh, to, um, and they're both taboo. Like, Oh yeah. And <laughs> as, what I see is at first when folks approach it, there's like lots of charge, lots of stories, lots of like, you know, childhood trauma. Like there's lots that's there and it feels really intense. And then as folks work through those things, build skills, start to take apart those stories, it becomes kind of neutral where it's like fine. And then on the other side of fine can be kind of like exciting because you're like, oh, I'm seeing how this like regular thing that I do is adding up, but it's like, it, it becomes not charged. Right. And that in a way that's not as interesting. It's not as compelling. Like we take something that was like really intense and we make it like just kind of a pretty much neutral to low key positive part of your life that you can derive joy by uh, doing the right things, but you're not gonna have joy every day. It's like, it just takes the pain out of it. And that's not always exciting, you know, compared to the stories, you know, compared to the the crash diet that's going to make you lose 40 pounds. You're going to be a whole new person, right? Or compared to the, like, you're going to make this new course and you're going to make $500,000. You're going to be like, you know, wealthy overnight. Those are more compelling than I think what the actual healing with money looks like. And I suspect food is similar. Oh, totally. And I love that you said it's about neutrality because that's what truce with food is about. It's like, I'm not going to tell you to have peace with food. I'm not going to tell you food is medicine. I'm not like, let's just stop the battle and then see what you want it to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's get rid of all the bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I think sometimes that fantasy thinking is part of like the flight nervous system reaction. Like I can't be with what's real. Yeah. Right. It's like, I just have to like escape into fantasy. Yeah. And again, that can sometimes be productive at, in our past, but it's like, you're right. It's just like boring, but I think it's freeing at the mm-hmm. same time. Cause mm-hmm. it's like, once something's neutral, you have choice over it in a way that, you know, I mean, I have this whole theory that just, we're all so addicted to intensity. So we're like addicted to the fantasy, then the crash yeah. and burn. And, yeah. but I think a lot of that is like, again, this is kind of a tangent, but is that creative energy that needs to come out, but it can just be funneled in. And that's what I think entrepreneurship is like. So once you can get out of your stories. And it's like, it can be this constant creative container if you know how to channel it. And like, what is the real problem versus mm-hmm. the problem you're manufacturing to keep this like yes. intensity yeah. you know, going? <laughs> yeah. Getting out of like crisis mode. Into yes. Just kind of like strategic, like, okay, this could use some more attention. How do I aim my energy towards this in a thoughtful, strategic way? Yeah. Yeah. And I think all of us crisis, I mean, talking about money, like I remember like, you know, my parents didn't get paid in the summer and it was like, are we going to make it through the summer? You're like, <laughs> so it's like, that is what I was used to was like yeah. this, Oh my gosh. you know, and I would yeah. often find like, I'd get money from a big launch. Right. And it was like, I would, I would definitely make sure I had enough money till the next launch. Right. Mm-hmm. But then it was like, I'm going to spy this. I'm going to buy this. It's yes. like, Oh, I'm staying in that. Like <gasps> now I need to mm-hmm. look, for, look for quarters in the couch. Cause it's the end of summer. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think that's such a great example of like riding that roller coaster of intensity rather than the stability. Cause your parents, as an example, and this is true for, for private practices as well, right. For folks listening is like, there are these high seasons and low seasons. And after you've been in practice for a couple of years, like, you know what they are. Like, you know, when your client population, like if you work with kids, you know, in the summer, everybody's off, like you're not going to be seeing folks so much. You can strategize around that, but generally speaking, you're going to know the ebbs and flows. And once you know the ebbs and flows, you can create systems that create stability. You can even that money out. So you're like, I'm going to get the paid, pay the same every month, whether it's July or, you know, March, 
I'm going to like create that stability. So the money's there, but without stopping to do that work, you know, you do end up like riding these waves of like this month I'm, I'm a success this month. I'm a failure yeah. rather than the middle, which is like, <laughs> things are good. Things are like working out. Yeah. yeah. The <laughs> letting go of the intensity, I think, you know, is a step in the healing. 100%. That's a great way to say it. Yeah. So I'm curious with where you are now, having like, you know, walked the path that you've walked and and started to create these, you know, you've got, you've got one to many offers or maybe one offer, you know, you've expanded the way that you make impact. And I'm hearing did a lot of work around your own relationship with money. What is your current money edge? I think my current money edge is trusting that it's okay to have more money. I know that sounds weird, but it's often part of, I think, healing our relationship to money is understanding that a lot of people who historically have had a lot of money have used it not in great ways, who <laughs> have yeah. power and money in not great ways, yes. but understanding that it's okay to have more, mm-hmm. even if I don't absolutely need it. Like mm-hmm. all my basic needs are met. I mean, granted, as a business owner, you're always having to keep the marketing flywheel going and, and sure. all that kind of stuff. But 15, 16 years into this, like I'm pretty secure in, in that my business is going to continue to be successful. I mean, yes. things obviously change, but it's like, I don't really need more, but mm. I want more security. I want mm-hmm. more, especially since becoming a mom, it's like, you know, you have these, like if something happens, your, your day, your work productivity goes sure. to, to yes. nothing. Yes. So my life is a lot more now that I have a, a child, like unpredictable. And, and I do want to go on like bougie vacations. You know? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I'm not really a thing person, but mm-hmm. I experiences. And so yeah. I think that's really of like understanding that you don't have, you're not going to be an asshole, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you, if you make more and more money and you can be, I think sometimes I fear that I won't relate to the people the way that, because one of the things I love about myself is I can relate to people and I don't care how much people, money people make, or that's my dad kind of always, we've learned about systems and structures and growing up, my dad kind of I don't want to say he was like uh, laughing at people, but the striving, he was just like, where's everyone going to, right. you know, like the right. upward mobility yeah. and stuff. So I don't think people are better if they have money or anything, mm-hmm. you know, like that. But I do worry about like, can I relate in the same way? Because even when I first started out, it was like, okay, am I going to really be able to afford the the ghee that I want to buy? You know, right. now it's like, I have the luxury. I don't have to wait for it to be on sale. Like I can just, you know, spend money. So it's like, I already can't, relate to the old me. Do you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I think that relatability and and having enough are really my edges. And I am curious, like, have you noticed in yourself? I, I'm hearing this like lack of relating. And it also makes me think of like a lack of empathy, right? Like sometimes when we we forget what it's like to be suffering, right? Yes. Or to have to make really hard choices. I'm curious, like, what have you noticed about that as you've had more like just straight up extra money available to do whatever you want within your life. Yeah. Do you feel like you still, yeah. Do you have that empathy? Do you remember what it's like? Yeah. I feel like it's, I love that you asked that question because I actually feel like I have more empathy in a way because I know how much I had to work to get here, but I also know how much privilege enabled Mm -hmm. me to get here. Mm -hmm. I mean- I my ha- I came from a very loving home. I didn't have financial, you know, <laughs> investments in my business, but I had yeah. I mean my dad was like, "Are you sure you should leave your corporate job?" but my mom was like, "Go for it." You yes, know. Yes. Like I've had all the emotional support. Yeah. And yeah. so I feel like I know all the work. If you do not come from money, and, and again, even if you do come from money, maybe your family lost money, but if you don't come from money and you want to improve your 
financial standing. I feel like as I've lived it, I know that it takes so much more than just work yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that kind of stuff. So I, and I find myself like, you know, being able to donate more, not, I mean, I read somewhere in social justice, like charity is actually justice. And I was like, mm-hmm. yes, I love mm-hmm. that reframe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. like, okay, I can put, especially as a mother of a toddler, I don't have a lot of time to volunteer, but I can now put this money where, you know, I want to. So I, I think the empathy has like increased, but I also say that with like, I don't like to share, like some people share how much they're spending online. I'm mm. like, I don't, I don't oh, want people yeah. to know, you know, oh, interesting. Like, <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I also, yeah. I don't know if it's just like a, an old taboo of money. Like, like it's, it's also like, why are we all sharing this? Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I will say I'm, I'm a fan of, uh, you know, talking transparently about money. I don't tend to like share it on social media, but like, that's not my, that's not where I share anything. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. I, I never Obviously, announced that I had a kid. And then later I was like, well, I can't post pictures of my two-year-old now. People will be like, who's that? So I don't, I don't live in that space personally as, as an individual, but yeah, I do. I do think it's powerful because there is this, like, we don't know what the next person next to us is doing. Right. And then what I've noticed is like, we make up all these stories about what they're doing, or we like, I mean, what I would really love to see, Ali, if people share is like, I spent this much this month, this is how much of it was debt, or this is how much I actually managed to like service on my debt, or because this is the other thing, right? Is like we see folks spending, I'm, I'm thinking about social media as an example here, and we assume that they have something figured out that we haven't, yes. that they've cracked some sort of code that they're able to afford these incredible things, even though we have similar businesses. And like, why can't I? I can't afford like an amazing trip to. I don't know, Bali or whatever, but it's like the way the numbers shake out. Sometimes like the folks are accumulating just a lot of debt, you know, no judgment on that. Like debt is strategic. You know, people can, you know, use debt however they want, but it's not, it's not as simple or straightforward as it might look. Right. Um, There's more to the story. It's a more nuanced, complex story than we get to see. Yeah. And that's why learning that like 80% of entrepreneurs had family money. I was like, yeah. Oh, I don't even know if people are making this from their business. I mean, you know, like, but I used yes. to be like exactly what you said. Why can't I do that? Why am I drudging to grad school on Friday night when? Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yes. You're comparing like your reality to their like highly curated, like yeah. selective <laughs> part of the story. It's an apples to oranges comparison. Well, and one, I don't know if you've heard of Kelly Deals, but she yeah. is, I love how she talks about like, I never thought of this until she, I learned this, which she said, like, I think it was like 10 years ago, or maybe I can't remember what is time anymore, but how a lot of those signals of wealth manufacture like fake authority. Mm-hmm. And, and I yeah. never thought about that. Like it's, we have this unconscious belief that like, if you make more money, you somehow know something mm-hmm. or you're better. Yes. Right. Because at least in America, I mean, I think it's crumbling, but the meritocracy belief of like, if you have a lot of money, you've earned it and you've worked yeah. for it. And yes, you're, you're better than. Yeah, you're better than versus like mm, the hardest working people in America are the poorest. So that's uh, where. 100%. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but I never thought of that as like, oh, showing that wealth mm-hmm. makes people think like I just hadn't connected it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a certain type of like privilege that you're trying to access or that could be accessed by showing this off in a certain way makes it look like you are doing really well or yeah you're yeah you're, you're it's kind of this is a thought that and I don't know if this is going to fit but I'm going to I'm going to share it I I read a, a great article from a, a writer that I follow a British writer and she talked about how when people share about losing weight uh it's like I had a baby and like you know they've, they've gained like 20 pounds from having a baby 
And they're like, I'm just not happy with my body. Your body's fine. I'm just not happy with my body. I want to get back to where I was. And she was like, we have to be honest about the fact that like people are trying to reclaim thin privilege. Like that's what they want. They want to go back to the privilege that they used to have and like go back to this system that privileges folks whose bodies who look a certain way and they want to regain that privilege. And I think about that sometimes with like wealth signaling is like you by sharing this, like you're saying like, I have privilege. Like I am privileged. I have earned this. I am better than I am what is right. And like, yeah, what are you trying to accomplish with that? Which is something I ask myself a lot when I share anything on social media as part of our brand is like, what am I trying to, what am I trying to get out of this? Asking yourself that question. Cause it's, yeah, it's complicated, thorny stuff. It is. And you know, it's funny that you bring that up because I'm listening to this podcast called Classy right now. And mm. it's all about class, yeah. which is all about money, you know, and obviously in America, especially about race as well. But yeah. they were talking about how most people want to believe they're in the good moral center, Yes, you know? So it's like, and I'm like, oh my God, that's how I felt. That was part of my money blind spot is like, I'm good because I'm not making so much money and exploiting people. Right. And, and it's like my business could ever, I mean, you can always exploit. Sure. I pay you, like my assistant, like whatever. Yeah. yeah. But then you don't want to be seen as like poor and quote unquote mm. bad, you know? But he was talking about how like even people who are like uber wealthy, they think they're in the moral center, you know? Like, yes. But it's like we, the problem, what we have to do is just take morality out of it. So much to think about, so much to talk about, but we should start to finish up. Ali, thank you so much for joining me today uh, yeah. on the podcast. Thanks. If folks are interested in finding you and following you, where can they do that? Yeah. Yeah. So I run a truce coaching certification, which helps people learn the structure of complex change. So whatever they're trying to help with people um, so they can scale to groups and incorporate their tools and everything. And you can find that at alishapiro.com backslash truce slash coaching slash certification. It's trauma-informed, it's ICF approved. And then they can sign up for my web, you know, um, my newsletter list at alishapiro.com. And then I have my own podcast, Insatiable, but that's more about food and the root causes of why we of, of battle food. And then I'm on Instagram at Ali M. Shapiro, S-H-A-P-I-R-O. But I'm not there all that much because of what we've talked because about. Everything we just talked about. <laughs> Wonderful. I post here and there, but I'm not, you know, super active. <laughs> You're not living there. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for joining me today, Ali. Thank you, Lindsay. This was so fun. <laughs> I loved this focus that Ali has on mastery and really sinking into your mastery and what you own. And what I was thinking about is really distinguishing between deepening your skill set and really sinking into a niche, how that is different than taking every exciting clinical training that comes your way. I really want to distinguish those things because I think that as uh, healers, as therapists, as health practitioners, like I mentioned in the episode, you know, we we so often focus on what we don't know and we so often want to be better. You know, there's another piece there where we often feel not good enough. We've often our caregivers um, as a way to feel valued. There's so many layers to it that can lead us to trying to do everything for everybody. And what I love about what Ali suggested of really investing in yourself is what I see there is a deepening of your skills, really sinking into your niche and really owning your niche deeply and being the best at what you do rather than trying to be able to do 
everything. And I think the not good enough can lead us to try to do everything because we see our colleague down the road who's doing this like really cool therapy uh, that we want to be able to do too, or there's a new modality and we want to know how to use it and be able to be part of those conversations. But when you really hit on what you're really good at, what you love to do, there's so much there to dig into and explore. And I also loved Ali's suggestion of just like staying there. And you can deepen the work that you're doing. You can do it differently. You can work with that same population or work with that same topic in a different way. You could turn the therapy, the work that you do into like workshops, groups, a course. You know, it doesn't mean there's not new learning and creative stuff to do, but kind of staying in that one place and getting really good at something financially and energetically is a really good investment for you to make. So, so many, so many things uh, that I could be reflecting on here after my conversation with Allie, but yeah, just really, really enjoyed my talk with her today. You can follow me on Instagram at money nuts and bolts. And if you're enjoying the podcast, I would super appreciate if you would leave me a review on Apple podcasts You can jump over there. It will take you literally three minutes. If it takes you more, you can email me about it. I'd love to hear about it, but I suspect it's going to take you only three minutes to leave a review on Apple podcasts. So other folks can be part of these conversations. Thanks for listening today.